From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called I Feel Now the Future in the Instant. Shakespeare adaptations are a proud tradition. Prokofiev turned Romeo and Juliet into a ballet. Verdi turned Macbeth and Othello into operas, and Taming of the Shrew and Twelfth Night have been converted by Hollywood into teen comedies. But there's a different type of Shakespearean adaptation that's a lot harder to get right. That's when someone takes an existing piece of popular entertainment and reimagines it as if it might have been written by Shakespeare. As Ian Desher can tell us, that can be tough to do. He's the author of six books under the series title William Shakespeare's Star Wars, based on the hit films featuring Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, and the rest. As you'll hear, making this work has taken far more thought and craftsmanship than you might imagine. Ian is interviewed by Stephanie Kay. So how'd you get the idea to mash Star Wars and Shakespeare? Did Star Wars just kind of cry out iambic pentameter to you, or what was going on? Three things happened right around the same time. I rewatched the Star Wars trilogy with some good friends of mine. Not too long after that, I read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is one of the first mashup books that really became popular. And then right after that, went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival with my family. And I was at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, sort of with Star Wars and mashups bouncing around in my <laughs> brain. And the idea just came to me. Wouldn't it be fun and weird to uh, rewrite Star Wars as though it were a play written by Shakespeare? So you started writing, and... At first, you're you're pretty careful. Stick close to the movie, and then somehow you get in touch with what George Lucas and what what happened here. Yeah, so I approached uh, Quirk Books first, knowing that they had uh, published Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. They then sent the idea on to Lucasfilm, and, along with the sample that I had written. And Lucasfilm was really, and it was Lucasfilm's publication department, not George himself, mm-hmm. uh, at least as far as I know. And they were the ones who who came back to me and said, you know. You've really you've played it safe here. We want to see you have more fun with it. We want to see you expand it and sort of go whole hog in the in the direction of Shakespeare. And so that was when I, I went back and revised and started having you know have stormtroopers talk about having drinks with Darth Vader at Moss Eisley and things like that. So uh, you know it allowed me to sort of take the the adaptation to a different level. So were you surprised that they approved the idea? I mean, you must have been imagining the other scenario where you're kind of expecting a cease and desist letter from George. Lucas. I really didn't know what to expect. The I always say that the tale of how I got the book published is a tale of dumb luck, and any hopeful aspiring writers out there who might be listening, you know, should not take my experience for how it's supposed to go. Because, you know, I did contact Quirk Books first, and I think the fact that they were taking it to Lucasfilm, and it wasn't just me, some random guy, you know, sending Lucasfilm this idea. The fact that it was an actual publisher who had the the means and the will to publish this book, I think, probably helped my case. Uh, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if it was going to be something that where, that they just sort of shrugged off and said no to, uh, or something that they took seriously but wanted the concept changed crazily, you know? And, and really, I mean, the, the amount of revision that I had to do to sort of get them to say, yes, okay, we're, we're happy with this, we'll, we'll move forward with it, was far less than, than I was expecting. And they didn't want you sticking straight to, like, the Star Wars movies. They actually wanted you to change things up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they said, go ahead and don't just retell this same story that people know. Go ahead and, and liven up the characters a little bit. Since Shakespeare would give 
these soliloquies to his characters where they're describing their motivations and their emotions, you know, they gave me the freedom to do that sort of thing uh, and the freedom to change aspects of the story or add in the occasional scene or, or things like that where you're not changing the overall fundamental story of what's happening in the movies. That's all still there. But you're adding in these sort of little bits and pieces that make the Shakespearean side of the mashup uh, sort of come out more. And you managed to write these things in iambic pentameter, five books full. How did you get so prolific with this with this form? So let's go back to high school when... My senior year, we were assigned to write 10 lines of iambic pentameter for an assignment that we had. And uh, so that was my sort of first experience doing it. And then through the years, would occasionally write a sonnet for uh, various occasions. You know, this is the sort of nerd you're dealing with. (laughs) Um, But by the time I came around to write William Shakespeare's Star Wars, had written... I would say a, a decent amount of iambic pentameter, certainly more than probably most people write in their in their lives. Uh, and so when I sat down to write it, I did have that experience behind me. And I will say that it still took a lot of getting used to, uh, to get used to the rhythm of writing that way. And, you know, I would tap out syllables on my fingers to make sure that I was, I was <laughs> doing it all correctly. As time goes on, that gets way easier. It turns out that writing in that style is, uh, is really like exercising a muscle. So Hmm. the more you do it, the stronger it gets. And so these days, you know, I can listen to a conversation or be watching TV and hear somebody say something and say, oh, that that was iambic pentameter right there. And then people look at me like I'm silly. Well, we're talking about it. So why don't you give us an example of what uh, iambic pentameter Star Wars sounds like? All right. So uh, this is the opening prologue of the first book, which is the same as the the yellow crawl of words that goes up the screen at the beginning of the Star Wars movie. Okay. Uh, and I transformed it into a Shakespearean sonnet. It is a period of civil war. The spaceships of the rebels, striking swift from base unseen, have gained a victory o'er the cruel galactic empire, now adrift. Amidst the battle, rebel spies prevailed and stole the plans to a space station vast whose powerful beams will later be unveiled and crush a planet, tis the Death Star blast. Pursued by agents sinister and cold, now Princess Leia to her home doth flee, delivering plans and a new hope they hold of bringing freedom to the galaxy. In time so long ago begins our play, in star-crossed galaxy far, far away. So, Ian, for those of us who maybe aren't don't have the ear for the sonnet or the iambic pentameter, can you bring it out for us? Kind of like how you sort of sure. measured those rhythms. Sure. Uh, so, iambic pentameter is uh, just means the iam is a, a soft syllable followed by an accented syllable, and so five of those in a row. It is a period of civil war. The spaceships of the rebels striking swift from base unseen have gained a victory o'er the cruel galactic empire now adrift. Wow, that's impressive. I think over the years, we've seen a lot of really bad Shakespearean parody. You know, (laughs) I think people sort of had this feeling that if they put eth on the end of a word, (laughs) you know, they can make anything sound Shakespearean, right? So I eth, hold eth, this eth, book eth, you know. uh, (laughs) And so I really wanted to do more justice to Shakespeare. Now, it's funny, uh, earlier this week, I spoke before a conference of Shakespeare scholars. And I was talking with some friends before I did that. And my one friend said, well, you're kind of a Shakespeare scholar. And I said, no, no, I'm really not at all. <laughs> and my other friend said, yeah, you're more of just a Shakespeare guy. So yeah, <laughs> that's, guy. I, I, I thought that was a good description. You I'm a Shakespeare guy. Put that on your guy. business card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would not a minute claim, you know, to 
have gotten his style perfectly. Certainly scholars would look at my work and say that there are all kinds of words I was using or the way I was using language that Shakespeare never would have done. Mm -hmm. But that said, I was really trying to make it not just a, a parody, but really something that would sort of honor the style of Shakespeare. So I was careful about my Elizabethan grammar and careful about uh, some of my word choice and certainly careful about my meter and and uh, when it came into play in my rhyme. So your knowledge of Shakespeare before you started this, what kind of level of engagement were you at with Shakespeare? So when we started studying Shakespeare my freshman year of high school, uh, started with Othello in English class, I loved it immediately. I, I sort of took to Shakespeare naturally in a way that many kids I, I know don't. Um, and I really delved into Shakespeare's language and started memorizing passages and things like that. Around the same time, you know, uh, it was when Kenneth Branagh came out with Much Ado About Nothing, right, uh, right. His, his movie, which I went and saw in the theater many, many times. And so it was a great time to be a young person getting excited about Shakespeare. Uh, here in Portland, where I where I grew up, there was a company that did only Shakespeare, and so I would go and see lots of their plays. And I was just soaking in as much Shakespeare as I could uh, during the time. And, and so I was just sort of that n- nerd with that sort of Shakespeare bent. Uh, and so my knowledge of Shakespeare comes out of out of that exposure, you know, really not not much in in college, but then after college, deciding to finish re- reading the complete works and and finding whatever movies I could, uh, seeing Shakespeare on stage as much as possible. So it's it's really been a passion of mine well, since uh, freshman year of high school. And you're actually behind the scenes too. You were working on a production of Julius Caesar, and you actually reached out to some to some British actors for their advice. I- yeah, I was hoping to uh, mount a production of Julius Caesar with some friends of mine. That was the play that we read sophomore year. So the summer after my sophomore year, not only did I, did I spend time learning soliloquies just for the fun of it, again, big nerd, uh, but I was also imagining this production that I was going to put on with some friends of mine. And so I wrote to several well-known British actors asking them how would they approach Shakespeare for the first time uh, if, you know, if they could sort of think back in their memory. And just recently, I, I looked back through all of these responses that I re- received. I received uh, letters from Judy Dench and oh, John okay. Gilgood yeah. uh, and people like that. I mean, really super well-known British actors who, you know, took the time out of their busy schedules to write to some poor high school student in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Good pen pals to have. Yeah. And you, uh, there are a number of significant soliloquies in the series that aren't in the movies. What about the, um, the rancor keeper in Jabba's palace? Well, in uh, Return of the Jedi, there's that lovely moment when after the rancor has been killed, uh, it's just this brief moment where you see the rancor keeper come out and look sadly he's upon. Sad. Uh, yeah. He's so sad, right? <laughs> and he's he's crying on his friend's shoulder, and yeah. it's just this really. It's brief. both touching and hilarious, right? Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. very brief, right? Yeah. Shakespeare would never give us a silent moment like that in mm-hmm. the same way that he would never, you know, just show Luke Skywalker staring out at the two sons of Tatooine, right? He would never just have somebody cry silently without some sort of explanation. So, yeah, so I had to write a a, uh, a soliloquy for the Rancor Keeper to sort of describe some of the, the backstory of why he loves this horrendous creature so much. Well, you made R2-D2 a speaking character. He's got monologues. Um, how did you come to give R2-D2 uh, this sort of rolling, squeaking, beeping tin can a, a voice? That happened when when Lucasfilm first asked me to go back and revise the manuscript. I thought, you know, what would be a a sort of fun thing to do that people aren't going to be expecting? And R2-D2, in the movies, 
Lucasfilm did such a great job just with his beeps and his squeaks of making R2 so expressive. Uh, And so when I had him speak in English, all of a sudden he's saying things that I think we all sort of think that he would be saying anyway. He's kind of noble. uh, You know, he knows that he has this mission and he believes his place in it will be important. And so, you know, it's nothing that we wouldn't expect from R2, but just to have him sort of drop his beeping and squeaking and reveal to the audience uh, that he can, in fact, speak, but he sort of is bound by duty to pretend that he is more simple than that, uh, I think was something that sort of just cracked people up. And was there anything that Lucasfilms kind of put the kibosh on, said, hey, you know, this character wouldn't act this way. You can't you can't write him uh, saying this or doing that. Yeah. When I wrote the first book, uh, I had Darth Vader give a soliloquy after he and Governor Tarkin have sort of decided to go and blow up Alderaan. Uh, and he that's, has that's Princess Leia's home for those who may not know. Uh, right. Okay, Sorry. Okay, yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he has the soliloquy originally about how he doesn't actually feel great about going and killing a whole planet of innocent people. And Lucasfilm's comment was, as of episode four, as of the first Star Wars movie, Darth Vader would never show remorse. He is totally bad at that point. And it was this fascinating moment for me as a Star Wars fan to see where their line in the sand was, right? I can make R2-D2 speak in English, but Darth Vader, you know, can't show remorse for killing innocent people. So I took that soliloquy and I turned it around 180 degrees and had it be the soliloquy about how he feels great about going and killing innocent people, basically. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, it was really fun. I mean, really interesting. Working with Lucasfilm has been uh, a lot of fun. And so to see how well they know their characters and how well they've developed the narrative uh, behind these characters uh, has been fascinating. Now, when it came to writing Yoda, he has that backward way of speaking. Did you find that harder to put into Elizabethan English? And, and how did his voice kind of change while you were writing? After the first book came out, everyone was sort of joking and saying, you know, now everybody sounds like Yoda. Because <laughs> when you when you take words and you put them into iambic pentameter or, uh, you know, Elizabethan English, word order starts to get played around with so that you can fit things into the meter. And so uh, I knew I had to do something special with Yoda um, because he has this very un- distinct way of speaking in the movies. And so I had a few different ideas. I thought, well... I could have him speak in something like modern English. If everybody else is speaking in Elizabethan, maybe he just speaks in modern oh, right. English. Okay. So yeah. instead of instead of do or do not, there is no try, he just says, oh, come on, just do it. You're being ridiculous. <laughs> you know. Right. Or if everybody's speaking in Elizabethan English, maybe he needs to go farther back and speak in something like Chaucer's <laughs> English. And right. I tried that, and that just did not go well. Okay. Uh, and one morning as I was sort of thinking about what to do with Yoda, had this idea, and as soon as I had the idea, I said, of course, that's it. And that was to write all of his lines in haiku, uh, which is a very, I mean, it's taking a huge step outside the Shakespearean parody because Shakespeare, as far as we know, didn't know about the haiku form of poetry, you know, I mean, would have had no exposure to it. Um, But it was sort of this thing that that I knew would be funny. It sort of fits in with who Yoda is and and sort of that he's kind of like a sensei to Luke in some way. And (laughs) So it just seemed to work. And so that's that's what I did with his language was take all of his lines and, and adapt them into haikus. Well, can you leave us with an example of a Yoda haiku? I can. Uh, do you want it with or without Yoda impression? Oh, I would love Yoda impression. Of course, okay. this is radio. All right, great. So, uh, so here is Yoda uh, speaking to Luke uh, in several haiku. Nay, size matters not. Look thou at me, I prithee. Judge me by my size? 
and where you should not, for my ally tis the force, a powerful ally. Life doth create it, its energy surrounds us, binds us together. Luminous beings we are, not this crude matter. You must feel the force, all around thee, here, between thou and me, tree, rock, everywhere it is. In between the land and your ever-sinking ship, the force is there, too. Wow, he just works in haiku, doesn't he? Yeah, it just, I just seem to work for his lines. <laughs> and yeah. you are a Star, Star Wars uh, fanatic, it sounds like. <laughs> you know, when you're a kid and you're sitting around practicing everyone's voices, you don't really know what you're doing that for, but now I finally know. Well, you've called the series William Shakespeare's Star Wars, and then your name appears in very small print below that. Um, but what took more chutzpah, calling this Star Wars or saying that it's William Shakespeare's? Well, probably... These days, probably putting the Star Wars name on it takes more chutzpah, if only because Star Wars fans are so uh, fervent in their love of the movies. And so when you put the Star Wars name on something, what you're doing really is putting it out there for the world to judge. And they will judge it. And I've been very lucky, you know, to have the books embraced by Star Wars fans. And by and large, their reception has been very warm uh, to the books. I mean, I think Shakespeare, in some ways, putting that name on it certainly takes a certain amount of uh, chutzpah in terms of, you know, the sort of intellectual claim you're making. Right. Uh, but in terms of the people who might actually respond and throw tomatoes at you, <laughs> I think putting the Star Wars names there is... You get uh, some crazy fans you know. out there who are kind of upset about certain things. Exactly. And again, most people have, have embraced the books, uh, you know, uh, very well. And those Star Wars fans who are objecting to it are objecting to, you know, the sort of minor points about various things that, that Star Wars fans are known for objecting to. And you, uh, so far you've got five books. You've got one uh, in the making. It's coming out in September? That's right. Uh, September 8th uh, will be the, the last book. So I've, I did the original trilogy first, and now we're working on the prequel trilogy. Uh, so the final book to come out in September will be William Shakespeare's Tragedy of the Sith's Revenge. Do you feel like the reader's experience changes from book to book as they're going through your parody? The device doesn't change from book to book, but, or, or does it? One of the things that I've tried to make sure I do as the books progress is to add in sort of more and more surprises for the reader, because the last thing that I want is for a reader to read the next book in the series and say, oh, yeah, OK, this, you know, I've seen him do this before. OK, it, you know, uh, you know, instead, I, I want there to be sort of fresh things that I'm trying out so that the reader will open it up saying, I know that I'm going to be surprised in some way. Well, can you tell us what some of the surprises are? Sure, sure. So uh, a lot of it is different things that I've done with different scenes or different characters. So Yoda speaking in haiku would be one. Mm-hmm. Boba Fett, when we meet him, speaks in prose instead mm-hmm. of iambic pentameter. So something that Shakespeare often did to set apart the lower class from the high class, right? So Boba Fett being my bad bounty hunter, he gets the uh, the lower class prose. Uh-huh. Um, the, some of the creatures have monologues uh, throughout. So People like the Wampa Ice Monster, uh, who, you know, attacks Luke in Empire Strikes Back and just, just roars, you know. I mean, in the book, he actually comes out and gives a little speech about how he's actually a very <laughs> humble, timid Wampa, you know. But he's he's just doing this because he needs to eat, you know. So uh, things like Admiral Akbar, whose who's most famous line is, it's a trap. Uh, mm-hmm. All of his lines end in a word that rhymes with app. Uh, so the Ewoks sort of speak in this pidgin English with a sort of a rhyme kind of thing, so you can almost understand what they're saying. 
all of Mace Windu's lines, once we get into the prequels, all of, all of his lines include the title of a Samuel L. Jackson movie. Uh, so it's just it's just little things like that that I've that I've tried to throw in to help keep the reader, you know, interested in, in what I'm doing. Did I detect a pride and prejudice thing between Han and Leia? Yes, absolutely. So there's a, a handful of lines there. I mean, that's that's another thing I've thrown in is what I would call Easter eggs, right, where uh-huh. I'm throwing in references to things that people may or may not catch to really sort of for those people who are really paying attention as they read to sort of give them little nods and and make them feel good for finding it, right? So, yes, yeah, so there's absolutely a Pride and Prejudice uh, reference as Han and Leia are bantering back and forth in The Empire Striketh Back. Uh, she, I think, talks about, uh, you know, if if he could uh, get rid of his pride, I would, you know, let my prejudice go. And, uh, yeah, so that was one of the, the many references that I, I threw in, just, just sort of for fun. Well, I hope you consider putting out, like, a teacher's guide reference so we can make sure if we've gotten all the Easter eggs and the surprises. I do have the an educator's guide that talks about all of the Shakespearean references that I've thrown in that I've thrown in. I don't actually yet have a an Easter egg guide to the to the books. You talked about some of the parallels between Shakespeare's stories and Star Wars, but are your books about Shakespeare or is it just Star Wars and iambic pentameter? Uh, I mean, it's it's Star Wars and iambic pentameter. It's it's Star Wars as I at least imagine that Shakespeare might have written Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So if you know. Shakespeare well, then you'll recognize the format. It's in five acts, separated into scenes. Uh, it, it looks very much on the page like a you know like a Shakespeare play does. You know, different lines said by different people, stage directions, uh, all of that sort of thing. So it's not about Shakespeare in any way. It's sort of in the style of Shakespeare. And and was he kind of the George Lucas of his time? Do you think? I mean, that's 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 an interesting question. I guess you know. I guess Writing if not the George popular... Lucas of his time, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. if not, the, then maybe like the Nora Ephron of his time, right? <laughs> Somebody, yeah, or Lawrence Kasdan, one of these you know great film writers who uh, who writes such rich stuff uh, for the masses, you know, for all of us to enjoy. Um, yeah, I definitely think that's what Shakespeare was. I think these days we tend to uh, hold Shakespeare on a pedestal, and he's sort of become. Mm-hmm more elite, uh, you know, in, in some ways. And, and I think that's unfortunate because really, you know, he did write the popular entertainment of his time. Mm-hmm. Well, Ian, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Ian Desher is the author of the William Shakespeare's Star Wars series. At the time of this recording, the sixth and final title was about to be published. He was interviewed by Stephanie Kay. I Feel Now the Future in the Instant was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Timmy Olmsted at WAMU in Washington, D.C., and Lisa Doherty and the staff at Digital One Recording Studios in Portland, Oregon. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.